Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, should we worry about income inequality? So, Richard, this has been this sort of roiling debate in American politics for the past several years, especially on the left. President Obama was talking it up for a while. Now you see Hillary Clinton embracing it, partially perhaps because some of the more visible Democrats to her left, people like Elizabeth Warren and Bill de Blasio have been beating the drum on it. So why don't you and I just start with this from a conceptual level. Income inequality in and of itself, not what people make but the gulf between what people make. What do you make of those who say that it's sort of reached this crisis point? in American life? Well, if we're trying to talk about crisis, you'd have to show some degree of transformation. And if you just look at the aggregate data, there's something known as a Gini coefficient named after Mr. Gini, some Italian statistician, which asks essentially as you go up the scale, um, the greater the concentration of index, uh, the greater the concentration of wealth, the higher the index, so that if all the wealth in the nation were owned by one person, the Gini coefficient would be one. And this particular number is remarkably constant over 20 years. There's a way of doing it at twofold. One of them is doing it on income, but of course, income tends to to ignore uh, redistribution through government programs and others. And so you will see a greater concentration of wealth um, without the redistribution programs and with it. And in fact, that's what you find. But the gap between them is about 10% or 10 points. Uh, but the actual distributions are remarkably constant. What happens is there are very few people at the top who may get spectacular incomes. Ken Griffin earns $1.3 billion a year. Uh, that's more than I did. Um, and so, you know, people say, oh my God, what about guys? who are hedge fund people who do this. But in the grand scheme of things, $1.3 billion in a $20 billion or more economy, trillion dollar economy is not a hell of a lot of money one way or the other. And so if you took the first 500 people of wealth and tried to sort of figure out how much that does, it moves this index a little bit, but it doesn't move it a great deal. So if you're trying to do this, you'd have to find other than examples, systematic wealth changes to do it. I don't think people have done it. Uh, the second problem about this is are you worried about inequality or are you worried about declining fortunes? And to me, the second problem has always been much more serious. The blunt truth about the situation today is that the median standard of living in the United States or the median income is sort of about where it was close to 20 years ago now. It went up peaked around 2001, kind of hangs around there and starts to go down about you know seven or eight years ago. And now it still has not yet recovered to the point where it is equal to what it was at its peak 15 years ago. And that's because of policies which really do hurt the middle class and drive the median down. And note, by the way, the median number doesn't change if the top person earns a million dollars, a billion dollars, or a trillion dollars. It's just looking at the guy in the middle and figure out where he sits. And that's a much more accurate sort of measure of where uh, wealth is in the United States. And so the question is, if you want equality, are you willing to sacrifice growth? Because if you get compression, it's much easier to compress down than it is to compress up, which is what most egalitarians would rather have but can't seem to acquire. Well, to that point, let's talk about some of the things that people on the left have proposed. One of the leading think tanks in the past couple of years on the progressive left has been the Center for American Progress. And you don't need to respond to all of these, but I just want to read you this list 
of recommendations that they put out last year, six recommendations to combat income inequality. And you'll get from them taken together a sense of the general thrust here. These are their suggestions. One, raise the minimum wage to $10.10 per hour. Two, increase access to high-quality preschool. Three, expand apprenticeships, so basically oversimplifying that paid internships. Four, universal paid family leave. Five, allowing Americans to refinance student debt. And six, improve retirement security, which for them, this is basically a federal uh, collective defined contribution pension plan. So you take those in the whole. You see which way it's going. What do you make of that kind of response, Richard? Well, I mean I think that I have wildly different responses to different components. First of all, the minimum wage increase is no longer the $10.10. The number that – the only number that's talked about today is $15. I regard that as a major catastrophe. I did some calculations about the $10.10 situation and tried to figure out what the lost income would be for people who were below $10.10. 10 cents who were not retained and therefore had to lose all their income and go on some kind of public support as against those who would get wages increases. And I think that even though there would be fewer people who would lose their jobs, their losses would be very, very great. You start moving this thing up to 15 percent, we're in complete um, unknown territory. Nobody has any idea what this elasticities will be. It's so far out of the norm that it could be major dislocations on the employment stuff. I would not want to try it. The American left seems to think that you try this, you lose jobs, and then you have more unemployment insurance. But oddly enough, the single most effective uh, form of combating unemployment has been to cut down the 99 weeks required stuff. And that's probably knocked the percentage of unemployment down by, you know, one percent and so forth. So you don't want to be doing the standard maneuver. Uh, we essentially create unsustainable markets and then offset them by unsustainable subsidies, which is what that program is. So I think the minimum wage should be out. It's amazingly popular publicly, and I regard this as a great deal of sadness because trying to oppose this now is like trying to whistle in a hurricane. You can't do it. The preschool stuff, I mean, I have much more sympathy for that. Um, most people, I think, do. There's been a lot of work done by Jim Heckman and so forth. And they say, look, it's a question of spending public dollars on education. You will get more bang if you put the dollars in for three and four years old than you will if it turns out you hold it, get interest, and put it into seven or eight years old. And I think there's a lot of evidence for that um, somewhere. But the question is, where do you put this kind of stuff in? And if you're going to do it into unionized schools that are run by the traditional principles of Baltimore public education, I'm against it. If you can, in fact, turn some of these monies to charter dollars, then it seems to me that you have a much higher rate of return. And knowing who's making the proposals, then it seems to me that it's much more likely that it's going to go into essentially non-productive channels. As to apprenticeships, I'm all in favor of apprenticeships. In order to make them work almost invariably, you have to do it at very low wages or at zero wages. That's always been the way the affluent have taken care of their children. They let them get good summer internships and then they get letters of recommendations or jobs or skill training out of this situation. And I think that everybody should be entitled to that. Uh, but I don't want this thing being run by a government program. Oddly enough, I think the best way in which you can start to um, achieve that particular result is to change the situation um, in this situation by having less regulation, fewer minimum wages rather than else. When it comes to things like student debt, I guess that was something else on your list, uh, the great catastrophe in American student debt funding was to take this out of private companies 
banks, which actually know how to handle debts and make the loans and so forth, and put it into the hands of government where there's a huge default rate. And what happens is if you give cheap subsidized loans, the people who are taking them and who cannot take it back may well not benefit very much from that kind of education. And what you do is you put people who might be much better off doing trade education at their own expense and putting them into these programs. To make it worse, it's clear that the Obama administration, though pretty good on many of the um, elementary to high school issues, has had a vendetta against the for-profit schools. And so if you start forgiving debts and then you give the money to community colleges, giving the wrong money to the wrong people for the wrong reason. So again, you have to know something about these programs one way or another. If one starts talking about greater security and retirement income, there are all sorts of ways to achieve that, some of which make sense, having larger keo plans, for example, or individual retirement accounts. But if it means trying to change the system of social security, uh, it turns out that it may be counterproductive. I'm not sure that there's any change that I'm, I'm really in favor of. I think the system is certainly subject to difficulties. But if, in fact, you've tried to raise the minimum um, retirement age a little bit, maybe a year or two, it might help bring the system back into a kind of balance. If you change the way in which earned income after retirement is charged against Social Security, you can improve things. So again, you know, you may want to do something there, but you have to be very careful to figure out um, what is going to be done. So the answer is, if you look at all of these things, um, there's a larger objection to them, which is there's nothing there about trying to re deregulate the productive economy. By thinking hard about labor unions, thinking hard about environmental protection, thinking hard about the provision of health care. And my view is that you may be able to move something like GDP by a half a point if you did everything right in these particular areas. But if you're trying to get back to the kind of growth levels that people were hoping to get in 2009, two and a half, three and a half, four percent, this won't get you close to those kinds of numbers. The American growth level is, I think, under the current situation, is going to be consigned to below two percent per annum, which given inflation and population increases means basically steadily declining median incomes for most of the population, and this stuff will not reverse that trend. So, Richard, let's talk about some areas where rather than having government get proactively involved, it could maybe help the situation out by pulling back. What are some examples you point to where government is either sort of unduly privileging the already wealthy or unnecessarily restricting opportunity for people with lower incomes? Well, I mean, I've always said, in effect, that uh, the two major markets that really matter the most are labor markets on the one hand and real estate markets on the other hand. And that deregulation in both of these markets would, in fact, have an enormous amount of good. In the labor market, there are so many forms of regulation that actually hurt the people that you're trying to help um, that the system has become completely counterproductive. I believe that the one item that I didn't mention earlier from the Center of American Com um, Progress was the paid family leave. Right. And I regard these things as a terrible mistake because it introduces all all sorts of crazy cross-subsidies between those people who work steady hours and those people who want to game and take advantage of the system. I'm not against paid uh, family leave to the extent that I would prohibit it, but I think it should be a choice that is to be made by the firm. There's no evidence to my mind that current family leave projects have done any good. Trying to tighten the noose is going to make it that much harder. And who's it going to hurt most? It's going to hurt small employers who cannot figure out how to adjust for that, and it's going to hurt their marginal workers one way or another. So what happens is you will protect a few workers in ways that make, make you feel a warm glow, but you'll probably dislocate more 
firms and more people from getting these kinds of jobs. So I'm certainly not in favor of anything at that level. I think the whole right to work movement is something which we really ought to encourage in the sense that if you can now allow employers to hire people without having to worry about union membership or union dues, I think the level of employment will start to rise. I think there are even some statistics that say the number of union members in right to work states actually shows a modest bump upward. They may be members of smaller unions that don't have any market power, or it may just be a function that the workforce has increased. But it's certainly something which I think suggests that in an effort to protect existing union jobs, uh, what it does is it creates massive dislocations everywhere else in the economy. If you start looking at the various situations with respect to land, I just finished teaching a course in land use control, and it's frightening how bad many of the comprehensive planning programs turn out to be, that efforts to try and get inclusive zoning means that you don't get any housing at all. So affordable housing programs intending to help the poor people tend to take developers and incline them to building office space instead of residential housing because the offsets on the affordable side are so great that they can't be offset by the market rate housing. If you look at the approval processes in a place like New York, they can last forever. If you want to check the contrast between a state like Illinois, which loses workers in a state like Texas that gains them, uh, just take a look at the permit process for new construction. It's a matter of a couple of weeks in Texas and Lord knows what it is in New York or in California or in, or in Illinois and so forth. But it's a much worse type situation. So liberalization in all of these markets, it seems to me to be the things that would help uh, people on the bottom of the system more. Um, I'll give you just one statistic which I think kind of captures it. Uh, If you try to figure out what the differential rates of employment are for youth workers in 1948 by race, essentially at the height of segregation in many parts of the country, same levels of of employment and unemployment. The difference was in the wage levels, which reflected the skill levels. Today, what we do is we have a uniform minimum wage, which is much higher, and its impact on youth workers who are down in that particular market range is much greater. And the unemployment rates for the minority students is much higher, both male and female, than it is for the white students. And even the white students do much worse than they did in 1948. And so, you know, you could start creating special exceptions for youth employees, but they become tied up in union politics and all sorts of other stuff. And what you really want to do is to open Open these markets wide up and to reverse everything that you possibly can. And if you do that in these two markets, the rest of it will more or less kind of take care of itself, I suspect. I don't think that rate regulation is an important issue for intellectual property or other kinds of markets. Uh, certainly with banking, there used to be some restrictions on small banks opening up in given areas. Most of those are gone by the boards and so forth, which I think is altogether a good thing. Uh, so that if you can kind of get a little bit more consumer choice in there, I think, in effect, that it will benefit the bottom because those are the people who are hurt most by the current system of rate restrictions and entry barriers. So final question that I'll put to you, Richard. This gets to the point you made earlier in the show about minimum wage. There is a certain gloominess that so frequently shows up on the right that it's it's hard sometimes to figure out when it's responsive to the evidence and when it's just kind of the default disposition of the people who are making the argument. But there's a sentiment out there that, you know what? The general public doesn't want to put in the intellectual elbow grease to understand economics. They're going to be swayed by these emotional arguments about income inequality. We can't combat sentiment with data. We're going to end up losing this fight. Are you that pessimistic about the outlook here? 
No, as a matter of fact, um, I just was reflecting today with some of my students about Mitt Romney's campaign uh, because he spoke at the International House at the University of Chicago and several of my students went there. And what they said was most remarkable about his own speech at the time was that he was very harshly critical of his own campaign in 2012. Uh, What he did essentially is he tried to out-empathy Barack Obama in trying to attract young votes and minority votes and so forth. And of course, he made a complete mess of it and he lost on that issue by something like 82 to 18. The area in which Romney could have won was to be a hard nux realist saying the guy who has so much power to give you everything you want is the fellow who's going to end up taking away everything that you have and that the only way in which you could expand your opportunity sets is to essentially favor lower taxes, deregulation, not worry about the benefits to the rich, but worry about the benefits that come to you, not to think that trickle-down economics is some kind of a disgrace, but to just assume that markets tend to redistribute wealth in good times all the way up and down the income spectrum. And I'm going to have a policy of hope on the one hand, rather than a policy of empathy for you without any fundamental changes and to think as the president does that you can raise taxes without limit, that you can increase limitation, regulations without limit and then handle it all um, through the way in which you deal with the money supply and the interest rates and deficits and so forth is a dream. Uh, essentially, if you're trying to reform labor markets and capital markets, uh, you have to do this directly. And fiddling around with the feds for the eighth straight year, deciding whether or not you're going to keep near zero interest rates is not going to improve things one whit. And I think Romney basically had the same critique of him that I have of him. Look, I do not expect that any time you speak publicly in this candid fashion that everybody will understand the refinements of every argument that you make. That would be much too much. But if you keep on the same speed, which says every time these guys tell you they're going to protect you, they're restricting your options in the way in which you behave in as a tenant, as a buyer, as a consumer, as a worker and so forth. Why are you better off with fewer choices than with more choices? And if you just keep putting it to them in that particular fashion, I do think you could win over enough of the vote on the groups who are very heavily pro-democratic uh, to eke out a respectable victory in the general campaign. Look, this is the ground on which the Republicans have won in the Senate and the House, and you've got pretty solid majorities in both places. These are the arguments that essentially have turned the right-to-work laws around in a number of states in recent years, I see no reason why they can't be used in a presidential candidate. And that's why, I mean, the name that always comes up to me as the most hopeful name tends to be somebody like Marco Rubio because he can talk about hard work, optimism, and hope. And he doesn't have to fight, as Jeb Bush does, the problem of, well, do you agree with your brother on what he did in Iraq in 2003? And until you get past that question, sir, you're persona non grata in the political world. So I do not, I'm not at all pessimistic about this. I think you have to really have confidence in your mission and state it. And to state it in a way that people will realize that you're not just trying to protect privilege when you make these arguments, but that you understand, as laissez-faire has always understood, this is not a program to line the pockets of the rich. This is a program designed to improve the level of prosperity and progress and peace and harmony throughout the land. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting definingideas at hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.